and I'm just going to read a couple verses, the first two verses from Hebrews 12, and it really just fits perfectly with the song that we just sang about turn your eyes upon Jesus. Listen with, uh, listen with me or read with me in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12. It says, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of uh, witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for your wonderful grace. We thank you for the truths that we've been singing today, Lord. How great you are. The fact that we are truly saved by grace alone. It's not by our works, Lord. All because you did all the works, Lord. I pray that you would, uh, your spirit would work today, Lord. That you would open hearts to your truth. That you would sanctify us by your truth, Lord. That you would bless the preaching of your word. And that we would give you all the glory. I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, let's go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 15. We're going to pick up where we left off last week as we're looking at the Jerusalem Council and uh, just one of the most monumental, pivotal points in the early church and and, uh, how it played such a role in affirming the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, and then also helping the early church that had two distinct people groups. And that's the thing that we're going to look at today. Two very different people groups from very different backgrounds and very different places spiritually. And all of a sudden, God does this amazing work, and Gentiles are included into the kingdom and coming to faith in in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And man, now they have a a lot to rejoice about, but they also have some, some, some struggles and some concerns and some challenges because there's just so many dynamics in, at work and in place here. And the Jerusalem Council is just one of the most important rulings of the early church to set some of these things straight and give the church a very firm foundation about how do we move forward um, with these particular issues. Uh, now, I knew today was going to be a good day because most of the time my wife is the only female in the house. And so I know sometimes she feels like an alien amongst a bunch of boys, and the testosterone levels are really, really high. But one of the things, you ladies know, is that many times you try to color coordinate, right? Like, it's important that, you know, people, you want to take pictures, or it's an important day today. My middle son, Vance, is being recognized as one of our seniors. We've got to color coordinate. Well, I woke up this morning, I put on a pink shirt. I didn't consult my wife. Guess what my son woke up this morning and put on? A pink shirt. So we color coordinated for her. Without even trying, that's why I know today is going to be a good day. I promise you. Amen. So, Acts 15. Jumping in from where we picked up last week. uh, Let me set the context and just be reminded. So you have this circumcision party. The church at Antioch is growing. Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. And there's a group that comes down from Judea and they go to the church at Antioch and they begin to discourage the Gentiles because they're preaching another gospel. They're saying, listen, unless you're circumcised and you obey the law, the, the complete law of Moses, you can't be what? You can't be saved. And we dealt with that last week about how Peter stands up 
under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and he just gives the, the best answer that, that uh, you know, God could have provided him to give and makes it clear that the Gentiles are saved by grace through faith, just like we Jews are saved by grace through faith. They don't have to do anything else uh, in addition to that salvation, in addition to that grace of God that's working in us for salvation. And so that was the record was laid straight there. And then after Peter speaks, we're going to see James get up, and James is going to stand up and give another, address another issue that was being raised there because what I see in this passage are two distinct different groups of people. You have the circumcision party who is preaching another gospel that you have to add works to salvation. But then you have the group of Pharisees who were in the church. These were believers, and they're still struggling and wrestling with what do we do with the pagan Gentiles who come into the, to the church, who come to faith in Jesus Christ? Aren't they supposed to still keep the law? You know, what, what do we do? You know, how, what's the relationship between the law and then living by grace and living, a free, uh, living in, under the freedom of, of the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's what James is going to address here in the book of Acts chapter 15. So I just want to read what James says, and then we're going to jump into this. There's four basic principles that we're going to really uh, learn about in this passage of Scripture today. And the title is Christian Conscience, the Law of Liberty, and the Law of Love. And I hope to encapsulate all of that in the next few minutes. And so if you look at Acts chapter 15, I want to pick up in verse 13. So again, Peter's already set the record straight. Here comes James. He's going to stand up. Listen to what James says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Acts 15, 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name... And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now he's going to quote from the prophet Amos. And he says this, After this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so what James is talking about here, he's talking about the messianic age that we all get to look forward to. There will come a day when Jesus returns that he will be king of kings, lord of lords. He will rule as the king of the Jews from Jerusalem on the throne of David. And guess what? We as Gentiles will get to participate in that kingdom. And that's, a, that's what we believe to be the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ for a thousand years. Man, it's just going to be an amazing time for King Jesus to rule on his throne. And we get to be with him and rule and reign along with him and serve him for a thousand years. And then, of course, eventually forever and ever. And so pick up now in verse 19. Therefore, now look at what James says. My judgment, so now he's saying, okay, this is what I think we should do with the Gentiles. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now listen, verse 21 is going to be a key verse, I think, in this entire passage, and most of the time, unfortunately, it gets overlooked. But if you want to underline verse 21 or make a little note there, we're going to come back to that in just a second. Now look at what the, the letter actually says, and we'll move on from verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So here's the actual letter. The Jerusalem council ruled, and this is what they sent to the believers in Antioch. This is to the Gentiles. It says this, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, 
Greetings, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we, give them no, we gave them no instructions. So there you see that these, these Judaizers, the people from the circumcision party that came down to Antioch and started preaching this other gospel, they came on their own accord. They didn't come with the instructions or the authority or the approval of the church and the elders in Jerusalem. It says they, they went out from us. They went and told you something that we did not instruct them to do. Uh, picking up there in verse uh, 25, it seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Okay, so there's basically four requirements. This is what they are. You abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And so basically they send this letter by way of Paul and Barnabas with um, Judas and Silas as well. And they go to Antioch and there's great rejoicing in the church. They are so encouraged. And the question is... Well, why are they so encouraged? But let me give you just a couple of few, a few observations about the letter itself that I think is important that we should talk about before we get into these four principles that the letter addresses. The first thing I want to share with you is that you have the brothers, the Jewish brothers, the leaders in Jerusalem who were all of Jewish ethnic descent. Notice what they called the Gentiles. What did they call the Gentiles? Called them brothers. Now, we may over, overlook that, okay, but it's very important that you see that they are basically saying, you Gentiles are what? Equal with us. You're in the same family. We're all brothers. And that's the promise of the, uh, the gospel in the Old Testament is God had uh, always prepared to redeem the Gentiles, people from every nation. We see it here even more uh, evident in the book of Acts. And so we know that the Gentiles, including you and me, if you're not of Jewish descent in this room today, then we are participants, we are co-heirs with the Jews to participate in all the covenant promises of the kingdom with the Jewish people. So we are all one people. This is very important that you don't overlook that fact. So they are all brothers. Number two, look at what they called the circumcision party. They, they call them some people or some persons not from us. And I think it's important. Remember, they just called the Gentiles brothers. They're brothers. But he said, these other people, they're some people. They're, they're not from us. And so they, they identify these people as false teachers. And that's what Peter addressed last week when we looked at his, uh, his message when he stood up and spoke before the council. Number three, note that some of the leaders, excuse me, all of the leaders were of one accord. Don't overlook that. That means that the all of the leaders, all the elders, all the apostles, all of the pastors there in the early church. Remember, this is the, the church has convened all the, anybody who was everybody in the church was there on that day. And guess what God did? He brought total agreement. He brought total agreement. I want to tell you something about our elder body here at Christ Church. And one of the things that I'm so thankful for, and ever since I've been here over 18 months, we've never made a decision without total agreement. For the, for the most part, I mean, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that where uh, our elders, if we don't have total agreement about an issue, guess what we do? We put it on the table and we put it aside for what? For prayer. And we come back the next time and say, okay, where does everybody stand? And so we're very, very 
conscious and we're very careful to make sure that as elders leading the church that we want to have one accord. We want to be in total agreement through the Holy Spirit and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It's not perfect. We're not perfect. But for the most part, that is what we strive for. And I'm very grateful for that. Number four, note that they sent the letter under the testimony of what? Two or three witnesses. Don't forget, in the Old Testament, in the law, in the law of Moses, it was very, everything must have been validated upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. So they write the letter. Not only do they send the letter uh, under the testimony of two or three witnesses, they send it with Paul and Barnabas, and they send two more people just to make sure that if you don't believe what's written in the letter, guess what? These two men, Silas and Judas, they're going to tell you with their own mouth that what we've written in this letter is indeed true. And so you have the validation of the, of the judgment there on the testimony of two or three witnesses, and then notice that these are basic requirements for Gentile believers, and it was intended to be liberating and encouraging to them, okay? And so I need to say this as well. This is what the council was not saying, because I've heard, and if you read commentaries on this passage of Scripture, I've read commentaries where good men of God who love the Lord and are trying to do their best to interpret the word They look at this passage and they say, okay, this is the point in the New Testament church when the law was flushed down the drain and we didn't have to use it anymore. And that's not the correct interpretation. The law was not abolished. The law was actually upheld. The law was actually upheld and honored. And so when it comes to Gentiles, of course, there are some things that are going to be different for us because we're not born in, as ethnic Jews and we're not, we weren't living in the land. We're not living in the land today, obviously. All the Gentiles who were being saved all out in Asia Minor and all over the world, they weren't Jews living in the land under the, uh, the civil and ceremonial laws of Israel. So things did apply differently to them, but in no way was this ruling or this council to say, hey, the law doesn't matter anymore, so let's just, let's just throw it aside. And so now we're just kind of creating a new religion here. That's not what's happening in this, it's actually, it's actually saying that the law had been fulfilled and upheld in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not saying that the Jews needed to abandon the law of Moses at all. The Jews remained being Jews and they remained to keep their Jewish heritage and their Jewish customs. And so I do think it's important that we take just a second to touch on that because I, I think we get very confused. Remember, you read the Old Testament and you're like, you know, I got a tattoo five years ago. And I was reading my Old Testament the other day, and what's what's the book of Leviticus say? Don't get a tattoo. And all of a sudden, I'm like, man, if I committed a sin, am I I under the law? Have I done something right? Have I broken God's commandments? And I just want to, as a base rule, let me just, I'm going to not spend a whole lot of time here, but I think it's important that we understand how to interpret the law as opposed to where we are now living in freedom in Jesus Christ. You ready? Very simple. I can can see the law uh, divided up in three different sections. You had ceremonial law. And that had to do with ritual washing, presenting your offerings to the priests so that they could make what? Sacrifices on your behalf? Well, guess what, guys? We're not making sacrifices anymore. We don't have to go through ritual washings anymore. Number one, there's not a temple. There's not a Levitical priesthood right now, right? In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. The Levitical priesthood was basically abolished or it's not in practice right now. And so, you know, and we're not Jewish people living under the covenant of the land in the land of Israel under that ceremonial law. So those kind of things don't apply for us, not to mention the fact that Jesus died once and for all for sin, being our perfect what? Sacrifice. 
And so we see that, that those ceremonial laws don't apply to us. Now let's talk about civil laws. There are also civil laws in Israel. And that had a lot to do with how you dressed, what kind of seed that you sowed in your fields, not getting piercings and tattoos and those kind of things. And why did the Lord tell the Israelites to be a peculiar people? Because he wanted to distinguish them from all the other what? All the other nations living around them, he said, I don't want you to be like them. I don't want you to dress like them. I don't want you to talk like them. I don't want you to do the things that they do because you're my people. You're to be a peculiar people, and you're to be set aside, and you're going to be my witnesses and to be a light unto the nations. And therefore, when they ask you, hey, why don't you do that, or why do you look different, or why do you dress differently, you're living in the land that I've given to you, and you're to be my witnesses to all of the nations. Well, I think most of those laws also apply to the Jewish people living in the land in that day. Guess what, guys? We live in Bartlett, Tennessee. We don't live in the land of Israel right now, okay? We're actually the Gentiles that they were supposed to be witnesses to. And so those civil laws don't always apply to us as well. Now, let me, let me just make a side note. It's probably a good idea not to eat a whole lot of pork. pork overall, pork's probably not good for you, is it? You said it's probably a good idea not to eat a whole lot of shellfish. Why? Because they're what? They're bottom feeders. So there are some dietary laws and restrictions that the Lord gave the Israelites that are still good. There's nothing wrong with them, but we're just not obligated to do them, right? We're not trying to earn God's favor by keeping those particular dietary laws or the way that we dress and those kind of things, right? Now, here's the last one. You ready? And then there's ethical or what we call moral law, okay? That's where you look at basically the Ten Commandments. You look at the laws for the nations that God gave in the book of Leviticus when it came to sexual immorality or idolatry and all those kind of things. Guess what? The moral laws that were given to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, they still apply to who? To us today. And the way that you test that primarily is by saying, did Jesus and the New Testament apostles reaffirm or reestablish or... Um, insinuate that these laws are still in place. And so if you're reading the New Testament, you're reading the teachings of Jesus, and he says do not commit adultery or don't steal or don't murder or whatever it may be, we know that he has affirmed that those moral, ethical laws are still in place for you and me today. Okay, and so I think that maybe helped clarify some of the things. Again, that's a whole other message in and of itself. I don't have time to get into that today, but that's the primary ways that we still understand how the law relates to us Today, right? So civil ceremonial laws don't really apply. Ethical moral laws, they what? They still apply. Got it? All right, now let's look at these four principles. James gets up, and he's addressing a complicated issue. First principle, principle number one, there is true unity found in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because this is really what Peter affirmed, and James just affirmed it. He said, okay, what Peter just said, that's true. God has called Gentiles by his own name. They are our brothers, right? And so there's true unity in Jesus Christ. I'll say it this way. There's one way of salvation. There's no other name by which we must be saved, right? Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So there's one called out, blood-bought, spirit-filled, heaven-bound people of God called his church. That includes both Jews and Gentiles, we are united under Jesus Christ. That's what Peter said. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. We believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they are. So there is true unity found in Jesus Christ. You know what that does for us? 
That means that we can celebrate our distinctions. Does everybody in this room look the same? That would be weird, right? So everybody in this room comes from different backgrounds. Not everybody in this room makes the same amount of money. Not everybody in this room has the same educational background or whatever it may be. But here's the beautiful thing. We come together as a distinct, distinguished group of people, but we come together and who, you, who brings us all together? Jesus Christ. We elevate Jesus Christ above all of our differences and all of our distinctions. That's what he's talking about here. So there's true unity. Principle number two. There are many different levels of spiritual purity and maturity for those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Guys, this is very critical. Okay, I want us to really pay attention to this point. When, when James stands up and he recognizes that, hey, these are the four things that we're going we're to give the Gentiles a place to start. This is what he's saying. Okay, not everybody comes to Jesus on the same terms. Think about it for just a second. Everybody comes to Jesus at a different point on their journey of faith. And so we don't all start at the same place. And that's what this council was really about. Now think about it. What advantage did the Jewish people have over the Gentiles? The Jewish people had been raised observing the law of Moses, learning about the prophets. The Jewish people had read the Psalms and memorized the Proverbs. The Jewish people knew who the one true God really was and they were seeking after him to glorify his name and to live according to his laws. And listen, they had a very solid, firm, spiritual foundation. If you were a Jewish people living, a Jewish person living in first century in Judea, let me tell you something. For the most part, you probably had a very good, solid, spiritual foundation. Now, on the flip side, what about a Gentile? Gentiles, what did the Jews consider Gentiles? Unclean, polluted defiled, immoral people. Why? Because that's pretty much how they lived their lives, y'all. If you were a Gentile living in first century Judea, you practiced paganism, you made sacrifices to demon gods, you went to practice sexual immorality in the temples, you lived a life of immorality and dishonesty and it was lacking compassion, didn't really know who the one true God is, you didn't have any hope in the world, you were just bound by this pagan lifestyle. Now think about a person coming out of that background and now they're in the church, now they're worshiping Yahweh, they're worshiping the one true God and they have so many other things to learn. They don't have the same foundation as the Jewish people. Now isn't that what it's like here in the church? Think about it. There's many of you in this room today, and you were raised in the church, weren't you? And so you were taught how to know the scriptures, and you were taught how to be a good little Christian girl or boy in church and how to behave. Sometimes I think we, we, we restrict people by trying to teach them how to be good church people. Because sometimes when we have a person who's not raised in the church and they get saved, man, they don't know any better, right? They're just on fire for the Lord. They're just going around telling everybody about Jesus and, and he kind of threatens and intimidates us who've been raised in the church and so we kind of have to quiet them down a little bit. Man, you're making me look bad, right? Isn't that how we do sometimes in the church? It's the same thing that we do today. We have people that come into the church today that don't have the same background. They may not know anything from Adam about the scriptures, about Jesus, about the church, about anything, how to live a godly Christian life. 
And so we understand that everybody comes to Jesus on their own terms, at their own place, in their own journey of their spiritual walk and their spiritual faith. And so we need to be sensitive to that. And we need to understand how to lead them along and lovingly disciple them in the Lord and not to burden them down with all of these rules and regulations and overwhelm them with all of these unrealistic expectations and traditions of men and all that kind of stuff that we can do, right? And so that's exactly what's happening here in the book of Acts. And so what's James saying? He said, okay, we got Gentiles coming into the church. We need to start with the big deal, with the big issues first, okay? And that's what those four prohibitions were all about. He's saying you got to eliminate idolatry, Okay, because I want you to think about what he's saying. How would you feel as a Jew, first century, if you're in synagogue and you just walked by the pagan temple on your way to synagogue and you saw a Christian brother in the pagan temple sacrificing to an idol and then going in to see the cult prostitute? And then a little bit later, that same Gentile comes down to the synagogue to worship with you. How would that make you feel? That would be, that would be difficult, wouldn't it? It will be a stumbling block to that Jewish brother. And that's what's happening right here. You see, you had Gentiles who were still kind of intermingling with some of their pagan rituals and some of their pagan worship. They were still going to pagan temples. They were still practicing some of these idolatrous pagan acts. And then they were still coming to the Jewish synagogue to worship with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And it was really an offense to the Jews. And they're like, we can't have this anymore. So as a baseline, just as a starting point for the Gentiles, James says, look... We're not going to burden them with all of these unnecessary laws that they, they don't understand. But these four things right here, hey, these are non, non-negotiables, right? So listen, don't go making sacrifices to idols. Don't practice idolatry. When it comes to blood and strangling, look, all that was, guys, again, I shared with this a few weeks back about the, the disgusting things that pagan worship involved. They would eat raw meat with blood. They would drink blood. It was a way that they worshiped their demon gods. They would sacrifice their, their animals and strangle them and all kind of torturous things and, and sacrifice to these demon gods and they would drink the blood. I mean, it was awful stuff. Then, guess what? They would go in and have orgies, practice cult, pros, cult prostitution. They, they believed that as they went in to go with the cult prostitute that they were being joined to the god or the goddess. That was their spiritual act of worship as a pagan. And we say, man, how, you know, I'm not even going to get into all that about, about how we could look down upon that culture when we live in probably one of the most perverse cultures that's ever been lived on the face of the earth. That's a whole story for another day. But what I will say is this. You can understand how that could be a serious stumbling block for a Jewish believer. And so James is saying, listen, Gentiles, we're not going to burden you with unnecessary things, but this is where you got to start. And that's the same thing that we need to understand in the church, guys. We don't all start at the same place, do we? And so when we bring new people into the church, we need to figure out, okay, what's your story like? Where, where's your starting point? You know, uh, where are you coming from? What's your background like? Some of you, some people raised in the church, they're a lot further along when they come to Jesus. Some people who have no church background, we got to give them some freedom. We got to give them some grace, right? So that's really what all of this is about. And so those are the four big non-negotiables that, that James laid out. For the Gentiles, I'm not going to get into all of those today because I think I may spend a whole other lesson in the future on that. And so we're going to move on to principle number three. Principle number three, there is a newfound law of liberty through Christ. 
This is where people need room to grow. Think about it. When a new person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, whether you were raised in the church or not, everybody has freedom now in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. Think about the day of your salvation. There should have been an overwhelming sense of joy in your life. You realize for the first time, man, I have been set free from the bondage of sin. I've been set free from the heavy burden of the law and its legal demands. I could never be good enough. I could never do good enough. I could never work hard enough. Thank God for Jesus because he did it all for me. That's liberating, right? And and all that guilt and that burden is lifted. And then you're set free from demonic control and and oppression in your life, the influence that the devil has in our life. And you'd be set free and delivered from that. And all of a sudden, you're just living on fire for the Lord. You're liberated. And let me tell you something. We need to allow people to have time to settle into that freedom. Because you can get a little bit too far on this side and say, okay, now that you're under the grace of God, we don't teach that you should just go and live however you want to live, do we? Right? That's called licentiousness. That means that you have grace, and so therefore God's, the blood of Jesus covers all your sins, so just go and live and sin as much as you want. Does anybody teach that here? Absolutely not. That's false teaching. But on the other side, we don't teach legalism. We don't teach that you're earning the salvation of God through keeping good works according to the law. And so there has to be a balance. There has to be an understanding that I'm saved by grace through faith, and now I have freedom in Jesus Christ. And that freedom can be very powerful, and it can be a little bit dangerous. And so as the church, we need to understand that there is a newfound liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Uh, James, he wrote in 125, he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is saying there's a law. It's called the law of freedom. There's a law of liberty. And if you are living in this law of freedom, you will be blessed in doing it. Paul said it this way. He said, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so, guys, there is a true law of liberty when we become new creations in Jesus Christ. And the danger, like I said before, in church settings, in traditional church settings, because we get so stuck on our legalistic traditions, is that if we're not careful, we can forget the freedom that we have in Jesus and we can become slaves and under the bondage of legalism again. And that's exactly what Paul says. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's exactly what Paul was saying. And let me just kind of encapsulate this for you more than anything else. Look, guys, this this is what I would say about this whole point. When Jesus Christ changes your heart, when you're born again, when you're a new spiritual creation in Christ... He does something on the what? Inside. And so you begin to live a life in obedience to Jesus Christ. Listen, this is what's key. Not because you have to, but what? Because you want to. Because God has done something so radical and dramatic in your heart. And your life has been turned upside down. And you love Jesus so much that you want to obey him now. Because he's done something on the inside. And you're not living and working and trying to earn God's favor. You already have God's favor. And therefore you're living life as if someone has the freedom to do so. Does that make sense? But here's your last point. 
principle number four. And this is where I want all of us to pay attention as we wrap up. So you have a law of liberty. In other words, if you've been set free in Jesus Christ today, you're free. You're free. Amen. That's, that's a blessing, right? You're now under the law of freedom. You're under the law of life. You, you should have a desire to obey Jesus. You should have a desire to live for Jesus. You know, the, the Bible doesn't point out every little specific decision that we're, you know, think about it. The Bible doesn't give us every single situation or circumstance in your life so that it tells you exactly what to do, does it? I think God did that on purpose. Why? Because he knew that he wanted us to live in a relationship with him. So he gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us his word and he's saying, okay, now you're free. Now go live for me. Right? But here's the key. The law of love always trumps the law of liberty. What do I mean by that? The law of love always trumps the law of liberty. I'll put it to you this way. Our liberty, our freedom ends where another brother's stumbling begins. Are you hearing me? Now listen to me carefully. Our freedom ends. You're free in Christ. You live with conscience. You live with conviction. You, you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't have to sit or go around and tell you. We don't have spiritual thought police or the Holy Spirit police checking your house or checking your, what's in your refrigerator or what, what kind of music are you listening to or what kind of movies are you. Know, we're not going around checking those things, are we? Why? Because that's between who? It's between you and the Lord, right? You should have freedom. You have a conscience. You have conviction. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, however, whenever your freedom begins to cause somebody else in your church family to what? To stumble in their faith? Guess what? Your freedom just got cut out. Because if you're causing somebody else to stumble because you're exercising freedom, you don't love that person. You're causing them to stumble. And that's what James, that's what the Jerusalem Council, because think about what they're saying. All right, think about Step back for just a second. A Jew living in this time could very easily look down upon a Gentile and say, you know what, you're a second-class citizen because you're not a Jew and you don't keep the law of Moses and you're not circumcised. And they could, make, they could impose legalistic requirements on the Gentiles and make them feel less than. Is that encouraging to a Gentile or discouraging? That's discouraging. That's not love. That's legalistic demands. But at the same time, a Gentile could offend his Jewish brother by going to worship at the pagan temple and, 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 and uh, involving himself in all this ungodly idolatry and then come around and cause his Jewish brother to stumble because he just saw him eating meat sacrificed to idols. He has freedom to eat the meat, but it's not good and edifying to his Jewish brother because it may cause him to what? It may cause him to stumble. That's what it means when the law of love always trumps the law of liberty. Listen to what Paul says. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what this is really all about. And that's what I love about the Jerusalem Council. It's because it takes us just where we are. 
It puts us in a body of believers where we have to deal with everybody's idiosyncrasies and differences and different backgrounds and different things. And we're like, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to live a free life in Jesus Christ where we're not living bound by legalism and tradition and all those kind of things? But at the same time, i got to always be conscious and I have to always be careful that I'm not causing one of my brothers or sisters in Christ to stumble. I know i got to wrap this thing up, but I do want to give you two quick illustrations before we close. The biggest one probably in this culture is alcohol. It's al- I just got some of your attention. I saw some heads were up. Alcohol. Alcohol. Are we free to drink alcohol? You are. The Bible doesn't say anything against drinking alcohol. Did you know that? Are you free to get drunk? Are you free to cause your brother or sister who does not want to drink alcohol to stumble? You're not. If one of your brother or sisters has a problem with drinking alcohol, don't drink alcohol around them. Even if you're free to do so, don't do it because you've just been an offense to your brother or your sister in Christ. The Bible makes it very clear it's not a sin to drink alcohol, but the minute you turn to alcohol before you turn to God, the minute that you cross over into drunkenness, or when you cause your brother or sister to stumble in Christ, you have committed a sin. That's probably one of the biggest things that happens in our culture, just so you know where we stand at our church. And I want to give you another one, and this primarily has to do with you ladies. How you what? How you dress. Living in this sex-saturated culture, and, uh, you know, it's just, I mean, we, we already know, everywhere you turn, ladies, if you're a Christian lady, as, as the great Kent Hovind said, if you're not in business, why are you advertising? Right? Is that not true? And so if you walk out of the door and you're like, you know what? If you know, you know ladies, you know exactly what you're doing. And so that's just a big deal in our culture today, causing a brother in Christ to stumble because they, they may lust. And again... Brothers, it's your fault if you're lusting after another lady. But at the end of the day, both of you have to be careful because the way that you dress may indeed cause somebody else to stumble. But you have conscience, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the freedom in Christ to dress however you want to dress. Just make sure when you walk out of the door that your conscience is clear before who? Before God. I'm not going to go around and police how you dress. We're not going to break a ruler out and start measuring your lady's skirts and see how many inches above the knee it is, right? That would be crazy, but those are two perfect examples, okay? So here's how we're going to wrap this thing up as we go. I'm going to ask our worship team to come on back up. And as we go, because we we still got to recognize our our graduates here in just a moment, and we're going to do that here at the end. But here's your application. May we use our freedom in Christ wisely to build one another up in love and therefore fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. Remember, don't, don't, don't forget anything else. If you've forgotten anything, don't forget this. The love, the law of love. If you love your brother and sister in Jesus Christ, that is the number one priority in a Christian faith in our church family. The law of love always triumphs over the law of liberty. You're free, but you're not free to cause your brother and sister to sin. Right? Amen? All right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to show you a special video for our graduates, and then we're going to sing one more song before we wrap this thing up and get to recognize 
our graduates. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for the law of liberty, that we are free in Christ indeed, and we don't have to live lives of worry or guilt or anxiety because, Lord, you've set us free, but we're also free not to sin. And that's a beautiful thing, Lord, and that we have the law of love, which if we love our neighbor, we have fulfilled the entire law by doing so. And I pray for this church, Lord, that we would truly learn how to continue to love and build each other up. In Jesus' holy name, all God's people said, amen. Promise you the world again and everything within my hands All the riches one could dream They will come from me I hope that you could understand That this is not what I had planned There we go. We'll get to meet those graduates here in just a second, guys. But I want to sing, we want to sing this song again, Grace Alone, as we, uh, as we close out the service. And so would you guys stand and we'll sing together.
Jesus, your face was set. I put my fingers down to. 